Well, hello, and welcome to the Chess Journal Podcast, where each month we host a discussion with the authors of important articles from the current issue of the journal, adding context and commentary to the challenges facing clinicians in the fields of pulmonary, critical care, and sleep medicine. To introduce today's topic, here's your host, Dr. Gretchen Winter. On behalf of CHEST, I would like to welcome you to this CHEST Journal podcast. I am Dr. Gretchen Winter, and I am your CHEST podcast moderator. Thank you all for joining us today for what will be a great discussion on perceived barriers by fellows to learning bedside ultrasound during their training. We are fortunate to have Dr. Carleen Spitzer and Dr. Mark Lavercombe as our guests. Dr. Spitzer and her colleagues wrote an article in the July 2021 CHEST Journal. Pulmonary Critical Care Fellows Use of and Self-Reported Barriers to Learning Bedside Ultrasound During Training, Results of a National Survey. Dr. Spitzer is an Assistant Clinical Professor in Pulmonary and Critical Care Medicine at The Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center, and she also serves as an Assistant Program Director for the Internal Medicine Residency Program. Dr. Lavercombe wrote the accompanying editorial, The Learner's Voice, Trainee Perceptions of Ultrasound Training. Dr. Lavercombe is a respiratory and sleep physician um, at Western Health in Victoria, Australia, and the Deputy Director of Medical Student Education for the Western Clinical School of Medicine at the University of Melbourne Medical School. Thank you for having me. I'm, I'm excited to be able to participate. Thank you for having me. It's an absolute privilege to join you. Absolutely. We are very excited. So to get us started, Dr. Spitzer, I'd like to start asking why did you decide to research this topic in particular? What prompted you to ask this question? Well, first off, I should say that I'm really just pinch hitting for Anna Brady, uh, who was the first author on the paper and who deserves most of the credit for this work. Um, but back to your question, this research study was actually really born out of the Association of Pulmonary and Critical Care Medicine Program Directors Fellow Workgroup, or the APCCMPD. And all of the authors on this paper, aside from Christy Burkhart, were fellows when we decided to investigate this question. And as we all talked, it seemed like though ultrasound training was becoming more prevalent, it wasn't standardized. And so we wondered, was there a norm when it came to how fellows were learning critical care ultrasound? And if there was a norm or a standard, what was it? How were fellows learning ultrasound? What barriers were they encountering? And how comfortable were most trainees with the various exams? Great. Now, how was the study actually conducted? Can you tell us about the survey design? Yeah, we sent out a 20-question survey to all program directors who are part of the APCCMPD, um, so a total of about 196 programs, and we asked these program directors to forward the survey on to their respective fellows. The survey included questions about procedural training and fellows' comfort with the various procedures. Fellows completed the survey through Qualtrics, and all of the responses were anonymous. So what did you find regarding how fellows learn and use ultrasound during their fellowship? The most common way that fellows reported learning critical care ultrasound was at the bedside. In fact, 90% of fellows reported learning ultrasound by scanning independently at the bedside, with 78% of the respondents stating that this learning occurred with faculty supervision. 
Interestingly, though, only about a quarter of the fellows reported reviewing the images that they obtained with expert faculty. Um, and then in addition to scanning independently, about 80% of the fellows reported that they had attended some type of formal didactics, either within their own program or at an outside institution. And what barriers to learning ultrasound were identified by your survey? The most frequently reported barrier was limited faculty expertise uh, in supervising bedside ultrasound. Other frequently reported barriers included the lack of a formal ultrasound curriculum and then a lack of time. Now, you also noted large variances in comfort with ultrasound, depending especially on the type of ultrasound use, like what exam was being done. Can you please discuss those findings? Yeah. Fellows were most comfortable with thoracic ultrasound, uh, with 92% of fellows reporting that they were moderately or very comfortable with this exam. Uh, About three-quarters were moderately or very comfortable with a focused cardiac ultrasound exam, and fellows were least comfortable with advanced cardiac ultrasound, with only 22% of respondents stating that they were either moderately or very comfortable with this exam. And then comfort with the DVT and FAST exams were somewhere in the middle, at about 50% and 40%. What's really interesting, though, is that fellows' confidence with performing various ultrasound exams only increased with postgraduate year for focused cardiac ultrasound. Um, So when we take thoracic ultrasound, for example, maybe the majority of the PGY1s um, who were moderately or very comfortable with this exam as first years were this comfortable because they spent their entire first year running around the hospital doing countless thoras, or maybe this was just a skill set that they already had upon entering fellowship. Regardless, their confidence did not change from the first year to the third year. Hmm. That is really interesting. Now, did you find any correlation between the presence of these reported learning barriers you discussed and the fellows' comfort levels with the procedure? Yeah, we actually investigated the relationships among the top three most commonly reported barriers and the fellows reported comfort with the five different exams. So thoracic ultrasound, focused cardiac ultrasound, advanced cardiac ultrasound, DVT, and FAST exams. Uh, The lack of a structured curriculum was associated with decreased comfort for all five exams. And a lack of faculty expertise was significantly associated with performing all exams except for thoracic ultrasound. So again, this was the exam that trainees were the most comfortable performing in the first place. The biggest learning barrier you identified was that lack of faculty expertise. I'm interested to know whether, do we think that's a lack of actual expertise or is it a lack of faculty availability or some of both? Yeah, this is a great question. And unfortunately, I can't say for certain, but I strongly suspect that it's both. So what do we know about how fellows are actually being formally taught ultrasound? A lot of them said that they had a formal curriculum, but are these, you know, weekend lung courses or these one-hour lectures, um, you know, is this uh, something that they have ongoing throughout their training? What is known about what's, how ultrasound is taught? Yeah. Now, this is a bit of a tricky question because how fellows are taught may not actually mirror how they report learning. Um, So we can take central venous catheter replacements, for example. Um, As a residency program APD, I would say that we teach our internal medicine residents to place CVCs through formal didactics, through simulation, through deliberate practice. 
However, when I was a trainee, I may have recalled the didactics, but I definitely would have reported that I learned to place a CVC um, by actually doing the procedure with direct supervision and coaching. So the good news is that when it comes to critical care ultrasound training, program directors and fellows really seem to be saying the same thing. Fellows uh, learn first and foremost at the bedside, but also through formal didactics. The other really reassuring thing is that when program directors have been surveyed in the past, they've responded by saying that they believe ultrasound skills are important and necessary for fellows to learn, but there are barriers. So at least there's common ground when we survey both fellows and program directors. I guess with all of this said, the aspect that seems to be missing when it comes to ultrasound training is the expert review of fellows' images. This is something that's recommended by multiple different professional societies, including the Society of Critical Care Medicine and the American College of Chest Physicians. And so I think this highlights the fact that there's definitely still more work to be done. And Dr. Livercombe, in your editorial, you discussed that this study assessed fellows' confidence with ultrasound rather than their actual ultrasound competence, which do not always align. Can you please talk some about that and the methods that were used to address, assess ultrasound competence in other studies? Sure, thank you. So I, I think competence is a measure of how uh, well you perform something or how good you are, whereas confidence might be how good you think you are. Um, and I think I've had the experience, and I think most people will have had the experience of working alongside a colleague whose confidence probably was outsized compared with their competence. And there is medical literature around this. Um, so in 2004, there was a paper on medical education from Australia looking at uh, intern year uh, doctors and their self-reported confidence and competency um, and the comparison and saw that there really wasn't a good correlation. And I think um, many people will have heard of the, the famous now Dunning-Kruger effect, which suggests that... Um, uh, people of lower performance levels in a particular skill often have a, a lack of insight into their level of performance and will over-assess their, uh, their performance, whereas those who actually have developed more confidence might start to see uh, the, uh, the risks or the, the um, complexity of the task and will actually rate themselves more harshly. Um, there was a paper in the Journal of Graduate Medical Education in October of last year which described this as basically competence being required in order to identify where you're incompetent, and I think that sort of sums it up nicely. Mm -hmm. In terms of how competence could be assessed, um, there are multiple uh, different uh, grading scales now that are used, and, and many of the listeners will have heard of things like BSTAT or EBUSTAT or UGSTAT for ultrasound-guided thoracentesis skills and tasks assessment tests. And I think the benefits of using a scale like this is that they're systematic and they test the specific skill. The learners and the supervisors know what is required and they're relatively easy to follow and they lower the risk of there being observer bias. Um, and interestingly, I think uh, there are some papers now coming out which are using these tools for remote or, or um, post hoc assessment of procedural competence. And that's become especially important since COVID um, hit where it's been harder to have people in the same room. Um, and I, I think 
there are some interesting papers, as I mentioned, talking about um, remote uh, assessment of skill competence uh, using some of these, these tools. You also discussed a concern that trainees from different fellowships may have different levels of access to necessary technology and education to learn ultrasound. How might that barrier be overcome? It's a good question and a difficult answer. Um, I think Dr. Spitzer's paper um, reported the finding that in the trainees who were from smaller sized training programs, uh, they had more difficulty accessing a device. And certainly my anecdotal experience in Australia is that access to ultrasound devices is varied um, and sometimes limited. And there's often competition for devices between craft groups or specialty groups. And I think that if there are um, difficulties for smaller programs in the United States, um, as found in this paper, as well as anecdotally in my experience in Australia, then that disparity is likely to be more pronounced in countries that are not as wealthy as ours. Um, in terms of solutions, I think it's likely to be very different for different parts of the world. And I think um, there will be a need for local solutions. Um, in my country, there is, or there has been a variety of um, physician-led, um, radiographer-led and industry-led approaches with uh, workshops and training programs. Uh, the Australasian Society of Ultrasound and Medicine has developed a certification um, for uh, clinicians who want to be doing uh, clinician ultrasound. Um, it has been our experience here as well that um, getting uh, expert review of imaging, uh, like in Dr. Spitz's paper, has been quite difficult. And uh, that's, I think, an issue of the uh, time required for radiologists or other, other specialty groups to supervise our trainees, as well as the potential cost to those departments and the medico-legal implications of um, possible supervision. So. The final thing I think is um, professional societies like CHEST. Um, so the amazing simulation program at the annual meeting for, is an example, as well as other courses that are run during the year. I would note that um, the literature around the knowledge acquisition from workshops um, suggests that one-off short workshops have relatively poor evidence uh, supporting them and that there does need to be a longitudinal approach. And so I think things where you have some kind of didactic um, intervention followed by um, supervised practice uh, with development of a portfolio and then subsequent return to um, a, an expert for, for assessment is probably the model that will gain the most traction. And Dr. Spitzer, would you please discuss the limitations of the study? Uh, of course. So obviously the largest limitation is that our data are all survey data. And though we asked fellows to recall the ways in which they learned ultrasound and their perceived barriers to training, we have no way to really check and make sure that these reported perceptions match reality. Uh, we were careful to describe our findings as fellows perceived barriers, uh, but this is a limitation nonetheless. Additionally, uh, though we had 475 trainees respond to the survey, we had no way to calculate a response rate since we didn't know for sure how many program directors forwarded the survey onto their own fellows. 
And then lastly, I'll just mention that like any survey study, uh, responders may think or feel differently from individuals who chose not to respond. Um, I guess with all that said, I think our study does still contribute to the ongoing discussion about ultrasound training. So that being said, what does your study specifically add to the literature on ultrasound training in pulmonary and critical care fellows? <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, I guess we already knew what program directors viewed as barriers to ultrasound training. So back in 2010, Eisen and colleagues found that internal medicine critical care and pulmonary critical care program directors cited a lack of proficient faculty as a major barrier to training. This was echoed uh, in 2014 in another study that also included surgery and anesthesia critical care program directors, and then again in a slightly different sampling of program directors in 2018. So I think it, it was well established um, how program directors felt. Um, the same things kept coming up. We need more experienced and more expert faculty, and we need more time. However, up until now, what we didn't know was what trainees perceived the barriers to be, and that's really what we sought to answer with this study. So, given these results, there is concern that fellows are receiving varied and sometimes inadequate education and ultrasound use in the ICU. So, as ultrasound use becomes increasingly prevalent and expected in critical care, what are the implications of these findings? And furthermore, what do we do with these findings? How do you suggest that these results should be used to improve ultrasound training and fellowship? Dr. Spitzer? Yeah, I think this is a really important question. And in order to help illustrate why, I'd like to go back to that uh, 2010 study that I referenced just a few minutes ago. Um, and Mark actually also mentions this study in his editorial. And in this paper, the authors concluded that though a lack of faculty expertise was a problem in 2010, they didn't think that this would be the case as fellows were becoming more trained in ultrasound. And basically, they postulated that the problem would essentially disappear. Uh, however, our results suggest that just implementing an ultrasound curriculum doesn't fix all the problems that exist or ensure that fellows will be comfortable with the various bedside scans um, going forward and, and certainly may not be comfortable, let alone competent, to teach the next generation of learners. And Mark, you just alluded to this. Um, in order to really advance the ball down the field, I think we need to ensure that fellows have a longitudinal curriculum uh, with image acquisition, review, and feedback to determine competency, and then they need continued supervised opportunities to ensure that they maintain and improve their ultrasound skills. Dr. Livercombe, do you have thoughts on this? <clears throat> I do, and I, I agree. Um, I think that uh, the Eisen paper optimistically um, was looking to, to a time when um, fellows would become uh, attendings uh, or, or consultant physicians in my country and this problem would, would disappear. Um, I think it seems to me that we need to recognise this um, as an important part of uh, faculty practice and um, Dr Spitzer and her team discussed this in their paper um, about having actual dedicated time available um, to supervised trainees. Um, and then the other thing I think that's really important is collaborations. Um, and I, I think that collaborating and partnering with radiology, cardiology and other teams um, to have uh, expert review of imaging, uh, perhaps difficult case conferences, 
um, partnerships with cardiology for echocardiography, for example. I, I think these things are going to be where you might be able to get a bit more traction in terms of having more people involved, um, a broader pool of people to learn from and to do the supervision uh, and, and hopefully a more sustainable uh, teaching program moving forward. Now, Dr. Spitzer, what are the next steps for research on this topic? Yeah, to Mark's point earlier, I think we really need to investigate not only perceived barriers and comfort, but also competence. I think, I think that's where we go next. So as we finish up this discussion, can you each please give our listeners a closing thought on what you learned from your experiences in this study? What do you want our listeners to take away from this discussion? Dr. Spitzer? Thanks. Uh, before we close, I'd really like to take just a moment to formally thank all of the other co-authors on this manuscript, Drs. Brady, Kelm, uh, Brosnahan, and Latifi, as well as Dr. Christy Burkhart, who served as the faculty contact for this study, and all the other faculty members of the APCCMPD, uh, because without all of their help, none of this could have happened. Um, but to get back to your question, I think through this study, I learned that though we've made definite strides in terms of programs ultrasound curricula, we still have a ways to go before fellows are comfortable, um, let alone competent with all of the bedside exams. And like Mark just mentioned, in order to fix the problems going forward, forward, we need to first ensure that fellows are comfortable and competent by graduation, but then also that they have some form of protected time when they become faculty members themselves so that they have... Um, both the expertise, but also that, that dedicated availability and time to train the next generation of providers. And Dr. Lavercombe. Thank you. So I, I think the first thing to acknowledge is that um, this paper was done uh, by Dr. Spitzer and, and her colleagues, aside from Dr. Burkhart, as fellows. And I think that's really important um, and noteworthy that they were able to pull this off and uh, make an important contribution to the, the literature um, while they were training. Um, I think my experience of the introduction of ultrasound in Australia is that it was a bit like the Wild West. Um, there wasn't a lot of um, uh, clear sort of uh, guidance or, or um, uh, it appeared to me that people decided one day that they would start using ultrasound and it wasn't very thoughtful or intentional. And I think that we now need to take that step to... Um, a more rigorous way of uh, supervising learner training so that we know that they're doing the right things on the right, on the right patients. Um, I think in terms of further study, the question that was asked of Dr. Spitzer before about whether this was a lack of um, uh, uh, actual uh, expertise using ultrasound or available faculty um, I think that would be an interesting question to, to answer in, a, in another follow-up study as well, in addition to Dr. Spitzer's suggestion of trying to assess learner competence. Well, a big thank you to both Dr. Spitzer and Dr. Lavercombe for an interesting discussion on an important topic, and a big thank you to our chess community for joining us. I'm Gretchen Winter, and this is a chess podcast. Until next time. <laughs>